When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Welcome to The Flower Path. I've put together an extra-long Christmas episode for you with some great guests tonight. Brother Richard Hendrick will share a Christmas story about St. Clair. Then I'll be talking with Father Dwight Longenecker about his book, The Secret of the Bethlehem Shepherds. Brother Richard then comes back to talk about St. Francis and the Christmas crib. Next, Justin Showalter will talk about the astrology of Christ's birth and what the Magi might have been seeing in the stars. Finally, we come back to Brother Richard one more time with a long segment with some questions from the Flowered Path Discord members. If you'd like to support my work at the Flowered Path, you can become a patron at Patreon. It's patreon.com slash thefloweredpath. All patrons get commercial-free versions of the show, while Rose and Orchid Tier patrons get exclusive episodes, other bonus content, and shout-outs on the show. Orchid Tier patrons get monthly merch mailings as well, This month, they got a limited edition, lathe-cut record by the Forest Beggars. If this sounds good to you, check out the options at patreon.com slash thefloweredpath, or go to thefloweredpath.com and click the support button. There is a link to Patreon there, and also a PayPal button if you want to make a one-time donation. I want to thank Astrid Steinhilber for the Christmas card and the prayer card, which included a third-class relic of Blessed Emperor Carl. Thank you so much. Merry Christmas. Okay, let's hear about St. Clair's Christmas by Location.
how on Christmas Eve, St. Clair being sick, was miraculously carried to the Church of St. Francis and there heard the office. Once St. Clair was grievously sick, so that she could not go at all to say the office in church with the other nuns, and when the festival of the Nativity of Christ was come, all the other nuns went to Matins, and she remained abed, sad at heart because she was not able to go with the others and partake of that spiritual consolation. But Jesus Christ, her spouse, willing not to leave her thus disconsolate, caused her to be miraculously carried to the church of St. Francis, and to be present at the whole office of Matins, and of the Midnight Mass, and besides this, to receive the Holy Communion, and afterward to be carried back to her bed again. Now the nuns returned to St. Clair, when the office in San Damiano was over, and said unto her, O our mother, sister Clare, what great consolation we have had this holy Christmas day! Would that it had been God's will that you had been with us! And St. Clair made answer, Sisters mine and dearest daughters, I give thanks and praise to our blessed Lord Jesus Christ, because in every solemnity of this most holy night, and even more than you, have I had my part to the great comfort of my soul. Because by the intercession of my father, St. Francis, and by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, I have been present in the church of my venerable father, St. Francis, and with the years of my body and of my mind, have heard all the office and the music of the organ which was made there, and in the same place have I taken the most holy communion. Wherefore, for such a grace vouchsafed unto me, do ye rejoice and give thanks unto our Lord Jesus Christ. Next I'll be talking with Father Dwight Longenecker about his book from Sophia Institute Press, the Secret of the Bethlehem Shepherds. As you will hear, Father Longenecker did some incredible research for this book, which gives a great idea of what Bethlehem would have been like at the time of the Nativity of Our Lord. I'd like to welcome Father Dwight Longenecker to the Flowered Path. How are you doing today? I'm doing fine, thank you. And we're going to be talking about your book, The Secret of the Bethlehem Shepherds. But before we get to that, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. I was brought up as an evangelical Christian in Pennsylvania, and after attending Bob Jones University, a, a fundamentalist evangelical college, I went over to England to study theology at Oxford and became an Anglican priest in the Church of England. After about 15 years, I became in, came into the Catholic Church, and then after a wait of about another 10 years, came back to the U.S. to be ordained as a Catholic priest. Wow. I now work as the pastor of Our Lady of the Rosary Church in Greenville, South Carolina. What part of Pennsylvania did you grow up in? In the southeast, Berks County. Oh, okay, I'm in York County. So I was extremely impressed by the amount of research you did for this. Can you tell us a little bit about what went into that? Yeah, I had written an earlier book called The Mystery of the Magi, which is looking into the historical background of the Magi story, and that was published in 2017. And I then had the opportunity to take a two-month sabbatical from my work as a pastor, and so I decided to go out to Jerusalem and do the research there in the Holy Lands on the shepherds, and so to, to dig a little bit further into the historical roots of the Nativity story. And uh, I was able to do that at the famous Ecole Biblique, which is the 
home of the French Dominicans in Jerusalem, where they have a famous library, where they had um, actually been some of the first ones to study the Dead Sea Scrolls. So that was a great privilege to live there and work with the Dominican monks in Jerusalem, and to do my re- use that as the ba- as as the sort of basis and the um, home base for my research. I like that you are pursuing the truth to the legends, and you talk about the Christmas story. You put it as uh, decorations, as the way you put it in your book. So, how do we separate? the legend from fact as regards the legends of the birth of Jesus and the, the history. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think a lot of people when reading the scriptures forget that we're dealing with documents that were first written in a different language 2,000 years ago in a culture that is very, very different from 21st century America. And when you go back to the Old Testament, of course, we're turning the clock back another couple of thousand years. So the opportunities there for these stories to morph and to change and to develop accretions and extra details and extra interpretations which aren't actually there in the text, it's very easy to do. And this has happened with the Christmas story more than any other stories in the scriptures. And this is because the Christmas story is, of course, a very attractive story. It's charming. It's got a young mother, a worried father, animals, magical wizards, magical stars, visiting angels. It's got all these magical, charming, delightful sort of details, and it's very easy, therefore, to elaborate on that and make it even even better and even more charming. So I wanted to go back and actually find, if we could find out as much as we can about the actual historical details of the core event, what really happened. And I'm sorry to go on a bit at length, but this was important because, especially in the Christmas story, over the centuries, of course, the Christmas celebration has accumulated even more magical elements. You know, singing snowmen, flying reindeer, a fat elf which comes down every chimney around the world on Christmas Eve, and so forth and so on. And it's easy, therefore, in the popular imagination to conflate the story of the birth of Jesus Christ with angels and wise men and wizards and magical gifts and so forth, and to conflate all these stories together and put them in the same big magic box of Christmas. And I wanted to go through and say, hang on, uh, let's winkle through all of this stuff and find out where the history actually lies. I do that in my own book on a local level. I like to explore these fantastic stories and then sort of get to the truth behind them. And there's often some interesting stuff that goes along with the truth. You don't get rid of all the amazingness when when you get to the bottom of it, certainly not in the Christmas story. You're right. The Christmas story is rooted in historical events, but they really are miraculous and wonderful events. Right. Yeah. But they become more miraculous and wonderful when we actually strip away some of the sort of tinsel and the extra decorations. Yeah. You're right. The analogy I use in, the, in my book is it's kind of like having a bare pine tree and then you decorate it for Christmas. You put on the lights and the twinkles and the sparkles and the, and, and the tinsel and the, and the baubles and everything else. But there's actually a tree underneath that, all that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So how did Joseph and Mary meet? Well, in doing this research, we have to also realize that the original sources are also 2,000 years old. Mm-hmm. We can actually know a lot more about New Testament times through archaeology and forensics and historical studies and texts that have actually come to light really over, over the, only over the last 100 years or so. So In many ways, we know more about the events and the time and the history of what happened in the Gospels than we ever have in the past. On the other hand, we have to also realize that the documents that we go to are themselves thousands of years old, 
and the documents of the New Testament, even, which are the most reliable, were also written a good 70 or 80 years after the event. So we go back and we, find, we do the research, and one of the, one of the documents we find from the early Church is the document called the Proto-Evangelium of James. This is a document which is, of course, not in the New Testament, but it is actually very early. It comes from probably the early 2nd century, and scholars believe it came from the Jerusalem area, from the area of the Jerusalem Church. So some scholars actually put quite a bit of credence in the core story that you find in the Proto-Evangelium of James, believing that some of the details may actually have been passed down from Jesus' extended family, who we know were instrumental and leaders in the Jerusalem Church in the very early days. So I think the other thing that becomes clear in your book is that we need some sort of idea of the cultural significance of the time they came from. Yes, I, I'm sorry, I, I skirted around your your question a minute ago. Mm-hmm. You said, how did Joseph and Mary meet? Well, it's from this document, the Proto-Evangelium of James, that we actually are given the details of Mary's birth, her family, that's where we learn about Joachim and Anna, her parents. We learn about her marriage to Joseph and how it was arranged by the elders in the temple and so forth. And these details in the Proto-Evangelium of James, which probably do orig- originate in the Jerusalem Church, are... On one hand, they're legend. On the other hand, they may very well be putting us in touch with some very basic facts about the background of Mary and Joseph. And if we're to take the historicity of the Proto-Evangelium of James seriously at all, then we would say Mary was born in Jerusalem, and her family had close links to the temple. Joseph's family was in Bethlehem, just six miles away, and assuming that his family also had close links with the temple, the Proto-Evangelium says that a marriage which was arranged between Joseph and this young woman Mary by the temple elders, and that's how they met, and that's where the story proceeds on there from then from there. And it wasn't unusual, and I think you talked to some people from the Middle East and said it still isn't unusual for older men to be uh, you know, married to younger women, but to keep it as a chaste relationship. Yeah, I actually had an interesting experience when I was leading an RCIA class we had some people from the Maronite community, which is based in Lebanon, of course. I was explaining about this marriage between the older man, Joseph, and this young girl, because Mary probably would have been maybe a 13 or even 14 or even 13 years old, and how it would have been a chaste marriage or betrothal. And they said, oh, yes, Father, we still have that custom in the Middle East. They said, if there was a young girl who's maybe an orphan or a young girl uh, who doesn't have a family for some reason— they will be adopted, as it were, like an uncle by an older man, and it's called a betrothal or a marriage, and the young girl will live in the extended family with her betrothed until the right time comes for them to be married. And the community accepts this as being a wedding, but it's a way, basically, that the extended community can look after the orphans or the young women who need a family to belong to. And in connection with that, one of the bits of research I found was a document studying some early Coptic documents about the early church and the traditions about Mary, saying that Mary was indeed an orphan, orphaned when she was about six or seven years old, uh, that both of her parents were dead by that time. Mm. So the miraculous events happen, and our mother is visited by the angel Gabriel, who asks her if she would receive the Lord, and she says yes, thankfully, for all of us. And she is pregnant, and she and Joseph need to travel to Bethlehem. Why did they have to go back to Bethlehem? 
Well, first of all, I explore the question of why were they not in Nazareth to start with? If Bethlehem is Joseph's hometown and Jerusalem is Mary's from Jerusalem, Bethlehem is just six miles from Jerusalem, both of them in Judea, in the southern part of Israel, and Nazareth is in Galilee, 90 miles to the north. Why were they in Nazareth to start with if they were, their hometowns were actually Bethlehem and Jerusalem? And I speculate there, based on some of the other cultural things that we know, and that is that Herod was building some cities up in Galilee, and Joseph as a carpenter or, carpenter, or maybe even a builder or architect may very well have moved up to Galilee, to Nazareth, in order to be employed in some of these cities that were being built. Also, we know from the cultural studies at the time that the northern part of Galilee was a kind of refuge for some of the more conservative Jewish people, Hebrew people, that were living in Judea and were not happy with the political goings-on and the corruption in Jerusalem. So they moved to, up to Galilee to sort of form little enclaves of more conservative culture and conservative Judaism. And so the speculation is that Joseph and Mary may very well have moved to be part of those smaller, more concentrated communities, and also so that Joseph could find work in those developing cities. They had to travel back to Bethlehem for what reason? They traveled back to Bethlehem in order to be registered for the tax, which, as, as Luke tells us. Mm -hmm. uh, and as Bethlehem was Joseph's hometown, that's where they had to go to do the registration. Remember, a lot of this is speculation on my part, putting together pieces of the puzzle from which we can draw some conclusions, but we don't have proof for all these things. Sure, yeah. You do write about the meaning of the word Bethlehem in the book, which is really, really interesting. Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, one of the beautiful coincidences in the story is that the town of Bethlehem is the city of David, the hometown of David and his royal line, but also the word Bethlehem actually means house of bread in Hebrew and that is where the bread of life is born. But also, the really interesting coincidence is that in Aramaic and Arabic, Bethlehem means house of flesh. So there, in the house of the town, which is the house of bread, he who is both the bread of life and the, the bread from heaven, who gives us his flesh to eat, uh, is also born in a town which coincidentally is called house of flesh. Yeah, that's such an amazing, beautiful... I don't know if it's a coincidence. It doesn't feel like a coincidence to me. It feels like a sort of intentional symbolism, but I'm not sure. It's one of those details where we see, in hindsight, how divine providence is weaving together things at a much deeper and more meaningful level than we first have eyes to see. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I guess that's what I was trying to get at. Yeah. So what would Bethlehem been like at the time? Well, the Judean villages at the time would have been a collection of small houses, probably built of adobe brick or built of rough cut stone, really just one room or two room houses. And there would have been a collection of an extended family who were living in that particular area. We know also that at the time, a lot of the people lived in the, in the caves, which are abundant in those limestone hills. There's lots of caves and that a lot of them would have built the house, their houses in front of the cave. They would have originally lived in the cave and then expanded out building a tent Bedouin-type house or even a house with, of, of rough stone and, or adobe bricks in front of the caves. And the, and the village itself would have been a very small village with, as I say, small family houses clustered together, and most of it would have been a, a tribe or an extended family of shepherds and nomadic farmers. Was there really an inn from which they would have been turned away? 
Well, people have to read the book to find all the details. <laughs> no, the word which is translated in in Luke's gospel is much better translated as a guest room. Guest room. Okay. Uh, in fact, Luke uses the same word later when he's referring to the room which is used for the Last Supper as the upper room. It's very unlikely that a village as small as Bethlehem at the time would have had its own inn or traveling hostelry of any kind. So where the translators of the King James Bible translate the word as an inn, there was no room for them in the inn. The proper translation is there was no room for them in the guest room. How does the manger in modern nativity scenes differ from the place where Jesus was born? Well, again, when I say over the centuries, various accretions and traditions grew up, the tradition we have of the stable being a rustic shed, as we see in most of our crib sets, this comes to us from St. Francis in the 13th century, who recreated a stable according to what medieval Europe would think a stable looked like. In fact, we know from the archaeological records and from the records today of the houses that were built in front of these caves, that the caves would then have been used for the stabling and for storage. So the tradition going back to Justin Martyr in the 2nd century, and also to St. Jerome in the 4th century, and to Origen, is that Jesus was born in a cave in Bethlehem. So when people say, was he born in a stable or a cave, we can say he was born in a cave that was used as a stable. So it seems to me that shepherds are somehow important. Again, we're getting into this sort of symbolism thing. Not only do we have the Bethlehem shepherds of the nativity story, but many persons from the Bible, as you note in your book, and then going up to St. Bernadette, St. Patrick, and more. This continues even into the 20th century with the Fatima series, and I believe Padre Pio was a shepherd as well when he was a boy. So what is it with shepherds? Yeah, God seems to like shepherds. It goes right back to Abraham, of course, and the Abrahamic tribes in the Old Testament who were nomadic shepherds, Bedouin shepherds, in the Arabian desert. And right up through the Old Testament, of course, God's people are nomads, which is meaningful in itself, but they're also shepherds. And the shepherd imagery resonates right down through King David, who's the shepherd king. And of course, he's the ancestor of the Lord, who calls himself the good shepherd. In Ezekiel, God says, I will come and be the shepherd of my people Israel. So this is a very resonant and very powerful symbol that runs right through the scriptures from the beginning, right through to the Gospels and to the tradition of the early church, where St. Peter refers to his himself and to the pastors in the, in the early church as my fellow shepherds. So this image, which still stays with us in the church today, in which the pastor of a parish, well, the word pastor actually means shepherd. So as the pastor of my parish, for instance, I'm the shepherd of my flock. And so with this language still continues into the church today. Therefore, Bethlehem being the city of David and the city of shepherds, it's important in this whole symbolism that, again, it is shepherds to whom the Lord appears and gives this message of good news. How were shepherds viewed at the time of Jesus? Well, this is the other interesting thing. Although the history of shepherds in the Old Testament is quite a significant and symbolic and important imagery for the Jewish people and then for the Church, in fact, in first century Judaism, in the Roman Empire of the time of Jesus' birth, shepherds were regarded pretty much as at the bottom end of the social structure. From a Jewish point of view, they were unclean, because they were dealing with animals and feces and afterbirth and blood and guts and all that earthy stuff. So they were considered unclean. But also, in the general culture of the first century, shepherds were considered to be low life. They usually cheated on their taxes. They were known to be thieves. 
They were known to be rustlers. They were known to have be pretty immoral. And so shepherds didn't have a good reputation. Although the shepherds in Bethlehem may very well have been very different, because there is a very slight reference in the Mishnah, the Jewish commentary on the scriptures and on, on Jewish life, which said that the animals in the region between Jerusalem and Bethlehem were meant to be preserved for the temple sacrifices. So it's possible that the Bethlehem shepherds were a special kind of shepherd, shepherds that were raising the special, very special animals that would be used used in the sacrifices in the temple in Jerusalem, about six miles away. Why would the swaddling clothes and the manger have been important signs to these shepherds? Yeah, there's this curious detail that the angels say to the shepherds, you will find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and laying in a manger, and this shall be a sign to you. Now, one of the reasons which prompted me to go on this research quest about the shepherds was a very interesting story I heard probably online or heard somewhere in my reading that these very special shepherds in Bethlehem, that after a lamb would be born, that they were raising the lambs for the Passover in Jerusalem, like I just said. But when the lamb would be born, that they would wrap it in strips of cloths and lay it in a feeding trough until the priest could come through and examine the lamb to see what was worthy to be a Passover lamb. So when the angel said, this shall be a sign to you, you shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes laying in a manger, that the shepherds who were raising the Passover lambs would have known, oh, we're going to see a baby who is the real Passover lamb, the Lamb of God. Now, I went out there to try to find evidence for this beautiful story. I'm afraid I did not find any evidence, and I examined as many of the books and texts that I could possibly find. I spoke to scholars from the Hebrew University. I met present-day shepherds in the Bethlehem area. I quizzed them about their life and their customs and their traditions, and I did not find any evidence for that very beautiful story. So I think that very beautiful story may be one of those accretions and preaching points which has developed over the years, but isn't necessarily rooted in the history. It is beautiful symbolism that those who came to adore Jesus were the shepherds and then the three kings. Was this a coincidence, or is there something more to that? Well, again, now we're touching on my story about the Magi, because Matthew never actually says that they're kings. He doesn't say there's three. These are details which have crept into the story over the centuries for very good reasons, but which I could explain, but I don't have time in this interview. <laughs> but certainly I believe that they were representatives of a, of a royal court who came to, to visit Jesus, believing that he was the king of the Jews. That's why they went to Herod to start with. They thought he was a descendant of Herod and were looking for the next king of the Jews. So I think there's definitely a royal element there, even though they were probably not kings. Mm -hmm. But in the traditions which have developed, of course, over the years with preaching, we have this beautiful irony that the first witnesses to the birth of our Lord are the most humble in the society, the shepherds, and the most exalted in the society, people with royal connections who are aristocrats and scholars. What can the Nativity of Our Lord teach the Universal Catholic Church today? Well, what I tried to emphasize in my research for both the Magi story and my book on the shepherds is that despite all of the additions and accretions and traditions and legends that have been attached to the story over the centuries, we must hold to the truth that these were real historical facts. This is not a fanciful fairy tale that has been made up to make Jesus somebody special. In fact, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, was born in Bethlehem of Judea to Mary and Joseph. Shepherds were a witness to that. Aristocratic visitors from a royal court came who were astrologers who followed the message of the star. 
to worship the Christ child, and that these are substantial historical facts about something which really happened. And we mustn't follow the belief that actually, you know, it's all just a beautiful fairy tale, because it's not. Because if that's all a beautiful fairy tale, then it's easy to start saying that all the rest of the gospel is also no more than a beautiful fairy tale. I loved The Secret of the Bethlehem Shepherds. I love the detail you get into. I love the historical research. I'm going to get your book on the Magi as well. I'd love to talk to you about that. But are you working on any other books right now? I've got some bit stalled at the book I'm working on at the moment, which is a book about the principles and the meaning of sacrifice. But I'm hoping it'll start to come together in my mind in the new year. I'm at the same place with mine. I'm writing a book on hermits, and I've completely stalled. <laughs> but I'll get on there. On hermits? Yes, yes. Well, you'll have to be in touch with me. I might have some insights about that. Oh, wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. Because the other book which came out last year was called, my book was called The Way of the Wilderness Warrior, which you also want to get hold of, because that's about a young man who goes to a monastery and meets a hermit. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. So where can people find The Secret of the Bethlehem Shepherds and your other books? Yeah, they're all there on Amazon, but also they're published by Sophia Institute Press. But if they go to my website, DwightLongenecker.com, my bookstore is there with all of my books, and they can get them there, and I'm happy to send them off as soon as they get in touch. Thank you. That's great. Thank you so much for coming on The Flowered Path. Happy Advent, and Merry Christmas. Okay, thanks very much for the invite. God bless you and your listeners. Bye-bye. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. 
Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. I'd like to welcome Brother Richard to The Flowered Path. How are you doing? I'm very good and feeling very privileged to be invited. Thank you very much. Well, people have heard your voice with mine on Strange Familiar several times, and you've done some mm-hmm. segments by yourself for The Flowered Path, some stories and so sure. forth. But I think this is the first time I've had you on specifically for The Flowered Path. So thank you for doing this. You're more than welcome. Glad to be with you and with The Flowered Path people as well. So you have a story about the 800th anniversary of the first Christmas crib. That's right. So it is, of course, 2023, and it was 800 years ago this year, 1223, when St. Francis of Assisi, who founded the order that I belong to, I'm a Capuchin Franciscan, so part of the Franciscan order founded by him in 1209, decided to, I suppose, awaken the people uh, once again to the, uh, the Christmas story. He felt that um, people had become slightly cold towards it or maybe weren't uh, centering the Christmas celebration on the events of the Nativity. And so he decided, along with some of his brothers, to combine the normal Christmas celebration, uh, particularly the Christmas Mass, with a living crib, as it were. Uh, the, the cribs that we have now in most of our churches and most of our places tend to be statues or carvings or, or, or various depictions, pictures, etc. But for Francis, it was it was a living crib. So I'm going to read from one of the sources close to the time, uh, one of the great biographers of St. Francis, uh, a successor of his as leader of the order, St. Bonaventure, great mystic and theologian himself. And Bonaventure set himself to chronicling the life of Francis. He had actually encountered St. Francis as a child and was cured of an illness. We don't know what the illness was, but was cured of an illness by St. Francis and later became one of his great disciples and probably one of the greatest theologians and mystics that the church has seen. So this is Bonaventure speaking about the crib itself. So he says, St. Francis said, I want to do something that will recall the memory of that child who was born in Bethlehem, to see again with bodily eyes the inconveniences of his infancy, how he lay in the manger and how the ox and the ass stood by. And so Bonaventure goes on to tell the story. It happened in the third year before his death, that is 1223, that in order to excite the inhabitants of Greccio, a small town in Italy, to commemorate the nativity of the infant Jesus with great devotion, St. Francis determined to keep it with all possible solemnity. And lest he should be accused of lightness or novelty, he asked and obtained the permission of the sovereign pontiff. Then he prepared a manger and brought hay and an ox and an ass to the place appointed. The brethren were summoned. The people ran together, and the forest resounded with their voices, and that venerable night was made glorious by many and brilliant lights and by the sonorous psalms of praise. What a beautiful scene. Each time we meet churches for a nativity pageant or a live nativity scene, this is what we're commemorating. So it's a wonderful moment. To this day, at least in the West, the sort of nativity displays we owe to St. Francis. So Francis was building on the earlier cycle, much earlier cycle of what we would call the early medieval mystery plays. And these would have been put on usually in the square in front of the church or the cathedral in in the towns. 
and they would have recalled the various events of salvation. And they had all kinds of cycles, but they would deal with everything from creation right the way through to the death and passion of Jesus. And, and of course, also his birth as well. And they would bring in all kinds of characters, some of them from legend, some of them from myth, some of them from the kind of more apocryphal uh, scriptural legends to try and illustrate them more deeply or more fully. But Francis wanted to, I suppose, take the story of the nativity and place it right the way back into the experience of the Christmas Eucharist. And so as a deacon himself on that particular night, uh, he was the one who vested as a deacon, proclaimed the gospel of the birth of Christ, and then placed the image of the child Jesus in the manger. And so the people were were astounded that the Eucharistic celebration, the, the Christmas Mass, what we nowadays call Midnight Mass, I suppose, the Vigil Mass of Christmas was being celebrated in this way. Many of the people were really astounded by it. And of course, it then became a custom that the brothers brought to other places then afterwards. And so the custom of the Christmas crib spread um, with people taking it into their homes, into their parish churches, into their, their various shops. And so as a way of commemorating it, Pope Francis has granted a special plenary indulgence for all those who pray in front of a crib scene at this particular Christmas with the usual conditions for that. But what's even more beautiful is that uh, it's recorded that on the night while Francis was preaching, some of the people actually had a vision that the image of the Christ child laid in the manger became awake, became the Christ child himself. And so Bonaventure records that story in this way. He says, a certain valiant and voracious soldier, Master John of Greccio, who for the love of Christ had left the warfare of this world and become a dear friend of this holy man, Francis, affirmed afterwards that he beheld an infant marvellously beautiful sleeping in the manger, whom the Blessed Father Francis embraced with both his arms as if he was waking him from sleep. For example, I suppose if Francis is, is doing this, it's it's a wonderful sign that the the uh, the action, the, the liturgical action of the Eucharist and the action of the uh, the depiction of the crib at Greccio is doing exactly what Francis wanted it to do, which was to wake the devotion of the faithful once again to their understanding of Christ. And we also have a beautiful afternote in some of the other sources about the Greccio day that once the uh, Christmas celebration was over, many of the people took the straw from the crib and took it as, as a kind of a memento, as a relic. And then afterwards they discovered that if they gave it to sick animals to eat, uh, the animals would recover. And it was often used as a way of bringing the healing blessing of the saint or the blessing of the crib to other people. They would dip the straw in water and the sick would drink the water and then would recover. So to this day, in Franciscan churches particularly, once the mass is finished, the crib for people to get the newly blessed straw, and bring it back with them. And in Ireland, it would only be in Ireland, of course, there is the custom that you have to place a piece of the straw in your purse or in your wallet. And this will ensure that your purse or your wallet is never empty for the coming year. So as one of our friars somewhat cynically says, of course, it's not empty. There's now a piece of straw in your purse or in your wallet for the rest of the year. <laughs> anyway, it's a little blessing. And I suppose that kind of folk devotion that often goes with the liturgy. But for Francis, the great revelation of Christ was the revelation of the humility of God that Christ incarnates to show us the path of humility, the path of poverty, the path of the, the extremes of God's love that he is willing to go to so as to be with his people and raise them back up again. And he saw that particularly in the three images of the crib, the cross and the Eucharist. The crib is the beginning of the incarnation, the movement into this world. The, the, the first station of the cross really is that first experience 
of Christ as he enters the world fully. In the old Celtic Christian traditions, there was the understanding that while the child did not cry at his birth, he cried the moment he was laid in the manger because feeling the wood of the manger against his back, he knew that this was what he was destined for was the cross. Oh, wow. And then we have the other kind of significances of the manger itself. Nowadays, we understand so much more and, you know, things like archaeology and science help us with that. But the manger that we often see as that little wooden stall, you know, filled with hay was actually a much more complicated thing. Mangers in Israel at the time were used to check a newborn lamb to see whether it was worthy for sacrifice or not. And so they would check the lambs, the newborn male lambs particularly, to see whether they were without spot or blemish. And this was done in the kind of stone tray of the manger. And uh, if they were found without spot or blemish, then they were wrapped up and made separated from the rest of the flock to be sent to the temple for sacrifice. So we already have a presentiment, a prefigurement of Christ as the lamb who is being prepared for sacrifice, even in those first moments of his birth. So, uh, you know, the more we understand the Christmas narrative, the more we can see the shadow of the cross over it from the beginning. And then, of course, for Francis, the, the essence of all of this was participation at the Christmas Eucharist, where we, we ourselves become the manger. We ourselves become the crib in which Christ chooses to come. And as uh, one of our Franciscan mystics said, if he came to the manger, if he came to the stable at Bethlehem in the midst of its chaos, in the midst of its uncleanliness, in the midst of its dirt, never fear that he will come to your heart because he wants to. He wants to be there. He wants to be one with us. He wants to bring us into the peace that only he can bring. So it's a very hopeful story. And I think for all of us, we can kind of reawaken our devotion to the infant Christ and from that to Christ in the Eucharist as we, we think about the anniversary of the crib. We know that now Christ was born in a cave. In a, it was a manger that was a cave. And yeah. we're told that St. Francis was just using the sort of uh, stables that he would have seen around. But would he have known that Christ was born in a cave? Well, the actual place in Greccio, it's still there today. There's now an entire friary built around it and over it with a magnificent chapel of the cribs where there is a crib from every country and every culture. You walk through this corridor of cribs that have been sent from all over the world. Um, so you have African style and Indian style and Japanese style and various other Asian styles. It's extraordinary with Christ depicted according to the culture from which the crib comes. But you arrive eventually at the chapel of Greccio itself and there you're shown where the Christ child was laid. And it's a small cave. It's a small hollow at the back of the mountain. Uh, and this was the, the natural chapel that um, Francis often went to caves to meditate and to pray. And it was while praying in this in this cave that he received the inspiration to create the crib. And so it was very much an outdoor uh, event, an outdoor Eucharist at that time. So the people were invited through the forest uh, through with, with lit candles and a procession. And when they got there, they found that he had arranged the crib and, and had brought the animals and the straw, etc. But it was actually a small cave that Francis himself was inspired to use. Interesting. That's a little bit different than the story I heard. I heard that the modern you know, nativity scenes with the, the modern sort of manger that we see in the West sure. East was basically because of the first crib that St. Francis created. Well, I think they, they had built a kind of a wooden canopy or shelter to shelter the people and to shelter the Eucharist. But the actual place where the baby is laid is a crevice in a kind of a cave, a depression at the back of the, the rock. Okay. If you Google Greccio and the crib at Greccio, you'll, you'll get to see it, no problem.
Brother Richard's book, Still Points, is available now as an audiobook, an ebook, or a hardcover at your favorite bookseller. How are you doing tonight, Justin? Doing good. So we're going to be talking about astrology in terms of the birth date of Christ and what that maybe would have meant to the Magi and other folks observing things at the time. Yeah, well, um, we'll be looking at that. And the thing about the Magi is we don't get too much information on them. They call them the men of the East. And so there is one theory that they are essentially Babylonians mm-hmm. or somewhere of that area. And so they are using a different system of astrology than we do today. So the Magi were were quite sure that they they're astrologers. Like there's just they follow a star in the sky. And that's the star of Bethlehem that we know it today. But the best evidence is that the star of Bethlehem was a planet. So one of the first things is that it was not actually moving. Like they were not following a star or whatever it was in the sky. Like that's not how they located the nativity. Rather, the gospel records that they were essentially asking around because their first stop was King Herod. Right. And they asked him, where is this kid? (laughs) So then... Yeah, obviously they weren't using the stars like a guide or anything for the location. Yeah, I think the sort of pop culture ideas that, you know, they followed the star, which kind of led them along the way right to the manger. Yeah, the nativity has a lot of things like that going on, sort of popular conceptions that a lot of them are modern. But anyway, like, that was not how the star was moving, and it wasn't even moving in a particularly different way. So, one of the ways that we know that it was not anything that was too unusual is the fact that the Magi were able to recognize its significance. Because it would mean that they recognized it as the birth of a king. And so that would probably mean it was some type of sign that they knew of before, rather than like a miracle of Fatima, sun or something going on. Right, okay. Yeah. So they were using their own system of astrology to determine this. Because the Gospels give some indication that the star was having some type of movement, it was more likely a planet, a moving star rather than a fixed star. And the Babylonians, and really, I mean, for ancient astrology, what you're looking at is, you're looking at a number of different systems of astrology. But one thing that they all have in common is that at that time, they were only working with what astrologers call the seven planets, which they're including the sun and moon in that number. And so it's essentially everything 
from the sun out to Saturn. Because that's what they can see in the sky. Okay. At times, Uranus can actually be seen by the naked eye. And a few asteroids as well. But they weren't working with those, at least not much. I've seen some indication that they did use Uranus when it was visible, but it isn't always, and so it's not something that there's a whole system built around. So it's everything out to Saturn. And this is common with Chinese astrology, the Arabic, Babylonian, Egyptian, Greek. Contemporary Western astrology comes from the ancient Greek astrology, where they're working with sun, moon, and the planets out to Saturn. And the differences between that and a lot of the Near Eastern astrology, such as Babylonian and Egyptian and Arabic that the Magi might have been using, is that the Eastern type is more omen-based. Whereas if you're looking at the Greek astrology, that comes from Ptolemy. He was an ancient Greek astrologer, and he is heavily influential on starting our astronomy as well in the West. But he, he did both, just like any astrologer at the time would have. They study the motions of the planets, what the planets are, and things like that. Ptolemy, for his astrology, he created a lot of the aspects between the planets that we use. So astrology, you are measuring the angles between the different planets. Astrology is heavily focused on these planets because they're the ones that are moving through the sky. Okay. The fixed stars are also important. Ptolemy catalogs those as well, and as well as their influences. But that's over in the Greek world. And that's a bit distant from whoever these magi were, and even just Israel probably was would not be too familiar with what was going on. A lot of the world back then was heavily dominated by Egypt and Babylon and such. So... Just from the fact that the Magi had traveled, the speculation is that they were Babylonian. And if they were using this more omen-based type of astrology, what they would have seen for a December 5th, 3 BC birth was likely Jupiter's movement around Regulus. If you bring up this chart and you're looking at it, so Jupiter is the king planet, and it is in every system of astrology that I'm familiar with. I'm not familiar with Chinese astrology or anything out in Asia, but Near East and Western, it's Jupiter is the king planet, as well as Regulus being the king star. This likely has to do with its placement within the constellation of Leo. So you got the lion. So it's king, king, king. And when you pull up the chart to a modern astrologer you're looking at the longitude there's a six degree difference between jupiter and regulus actually and so a lot of astrologers would not even look at that they would not call it a conjunction they'd be like oh that's that's too distant there's no influence between the two but if you're looking at it with your naked eye 
that's pretty still pretty close. If you look at just looking up at the night sky and you see Jupiter, like they're they're close together. But there's another aspect, which is the latitude that you're looking at. Along the latitude, they are a zero degree conjunction, and so you are in fact looking at quite a close connection between the two planets, more than likely. What would that have meant to them, to the Magi, understanding astrology at the time? Okay, so for the Babylonian, they say if Jupiter passes Regulus and gets ahead of it, and afterward Regulus, which it passed and got ahead of, stays within its setting, someone will rise and kill the king. That's a powerful omen, and that's probably what Herod was quite... We have that in the Gospels. Herod was worried about this king. Yeah. And that became the slaughter of the holy innocents. Mm-hmm. He was worried that, okay, there's this new king, and this king is going to get rid of me. So that was what these magi were probably looking at. And again, I say probably because I, we don't entirely know who they were. Sure. In fact, I've even seen some speculation that they didn't actually come from the East. That was just the gospel writer's way of, you know, whatever. Like, they, they didn't actually come from the East. They were within the area. I don't know. I don't know. But if they were from the East, this is probably what they were looking at. And they were looking at a new king. There's something else about, if we're sticking with this traditional Christmas date, that they might have saw and noticed, is that... If Jesus was born at midnight, which is the traditional time that we're getting, then you're also getting a conjunction between Jupiter and the moon. Now this, I don't know for sure how an ancient would interpret it. The moon is mother, and certainly in Western astrology. Whether or not it is an ancient, I don't know. But if you look at such a conjunction through a Western astrology lens, then you're looking at king and mother. And so if you're already looking at this as a birth, then that would be significant, especially if you're looking at December 25th date, where you have the sun, which represents birth, ingressing into a new sign, Capricorn. And Capricorn is associated with achievement and getting ahead and things like that. And so you can see a king being born just out of that alone. The symbolism of the moon, how many visions, including in Revelation, uh, people have seen Mary with the moon at her feet. So I think that would hold some symbolism too, at least to us looking backwards, you know, at the time, who knows, but now it certainly holds some weight. Yeah. Yeah. And especially that, that particular passage that you reference that's in revelation about the moon being at the feet that's something that people will they'll try and create that in the night sky when trying to find jesus birth and that's one of the ways that people get the september date okay so just so people know not everybody thinks jesus was born on the 25th of december in fact a lot of people think there are other dates september being one of them yeah I'm not entirely convinced by that for a few reasons, but one is that the moon moves pretty quickly through the sky. It's every hour, no, every two hours, one degree, I believe it is. Or it's the other way around, two hours, one degree, one. 
but it moves pretty quickly. If we're looking at December 25th, in particular at midnight, there it is joined with Jupiter in longitudinal conjunct. And that's the type of conjunct that astrologers focus on the most via longitude. Through the astrological system that I use of L. Edward Jondro, Jupiter also represents virginity. And so you have virgin birth when you're looking at this. Yeah. You also have within that Capricorn ingress there in Capricorn there, that is the early degrees there are heavily Neptunian, which Neptune is not a planet. They, they don't even know it exists back then. But today we associate it and our astrology and it's heavily associated with religion and catholicism in particular heaven so with sun in those early degrees you do have representation of a savior or messiah and something that the ancient astrologers might have noticed if they were paying attention to angles and aspects between the planets as an ancient greek astrologer would do then they would notice that on this particular day, this sun has no aspects to it. No planets are in any type of major angle to it. I mean, I'll leave it at that descriptor, but today we call this a peregrine planet, which means it's much more powerful and it's more unpredictable. It's a lot more significant. That bolsters a lot more this um, idea that December 25th, like, it, it looks stronger to me than a September date for mm -hmm. Jesus' birth. For those reasons alone, you, the Jupiter-Moon conjunct at midnight and then the Capricorn ingress, which happens every year, but here it's peregrine. And you also have Saturn with another royal star, Altair. There's a lot going on at the on the chart, and I mean, honestly, those are the biggest signs for me. But an astrologer, any chart is just bottomless in the first place, let alone something like this. So, well, it's interesting, and we've talked about this a little bit before that when we weren't recording. But people, it seems like they they sometimes reject the December twenty fifth birthday almost because it's like too neat. It's like too neat of a story, and it sort of ties everything up in a nice little bow. And there's all these symbols that go with it, and it's close to the solstice, and yeah, it's almost like it's too neat. So people are like, "Well, you know, it couldn't be. He must have been born at another time." But there's a lot, a lot of things about the story. I mean, the story is infused with symbolism, right down to Christ is born in a cave. The manger was a cave, and he's reborn. You know, he when he conquers death, and he is resurrected, he is in a cave. You know, so you have his life beginning, and then ending or beginning again, depending on how you want to look at it, in a cave. You know, there's all this beautiful symbolism that goes around it. Father Longenecker was talking about Bethlehem and the meaning of that. And, you know, in uh, Aramaic, it means house of flesh. In Hebrew, it meant house of bread. So we have the bread and the flesh together there. There's a lot of symbolism in this, and it's almost like it can't be removed. To me, that almost points to the December 25th being more convincing as the date. Oh, yeah. The thing about the winter solstice in particular is in astrology where we get these 12 signs is 
that these are the signs that the sun passes through throughout the year, and it's marking the seasons, the start of different seasons, largely. And so an ancient person, they observe the sky, and then, oh, now the sun is over in this new sign, so something new is happening now, is yeah. how they think of these things, and why God would not use that? <laughs> um, it's, it's just kind of silly to me. I also want to say about how you can get the December 25th date from the Bible. In the Catholic Church, we do mark not only the birth dates of Jesus, and, well, I guess maybe not everybody knows this, but we mark the birth dates of Jesus, Mary, and John the Baptist. Mm -hmm. But we also mark their conception dates. Yes. It's all in the liturgical calendar, and we get these from the Bible. So, St. Luke's Gospel tells us that John the Baptist was conceived on the feast of Sukkot, which occurs in late September. And then we know from scripture that John the Baptist was six months older than Jesus. So you add 15 months from late September, and you end up in late December for Jesus' birth. It's really just simple math. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I have a bit of a pet peeve where... A lot of Christians, they are so quick to agree with contrary scholarship and academics. And I just feel like it's, they just want to look smart and accept the science or whatever it is that's going on when I just don't see any reason to doubt this. I feel like the burden of proof is heavily on the academics to disprove this chronology that the gospels give us right there oh yeah people might find it strange that we're talking about astrology but i think it's important to point out and maybe we should have done this at the beginning of the conversation but we'll get to it now that astrology is not condemned divination is condemned but astrology is not yeah the church gets its authority from jesus and the way that magisterial teaching works is that it's guided by the Holy Ghost, and therefore it cannot go against divine revelation. So, for example, as a Catholic, we believe that it is impossible for the Pope to infallibly declare that Jesus is not God. You know, something like that. But even a lot of other things that you might not think of as too extreme. The church has a lot of powerful teaching authority, and it's often infallible teaching, but it's guided and protected so that it can never go against divine revelation. And I think this is where you get, if you're looking at the different saints through history, they kind of go back and forth on astrology. For example, St. Hildegard, she's quite wishy-washy about astrology, where she uses it on the one hand because she's living in the 12th century and working with science, and that's what scientists did back then was use astrology. But at the same time, she's writing these long papers where she's trying to explain how we're not controlled by the stars and 
and that God, he can certainly use the stars as signs. And we know this from scripture because in Genesis 1, God says he made the, put the lights in the sky as signs for us. Even if you want to kind of go, you know, that's the Old Testament, it doesn't apply to, like, if you want to have that type of evangelical thinking, okay. But then you have Jesus in Luke 21 saying, watch the sun, moon, and stars for signs of my coming. So you almost have, like, a command from Jesus to actually pay attention. The exact quote, Luke 21, 25, there shall be signs in the sun and in the moon and in the stars at the end of the age. And in that passage, of course, Jesus tells us to be watching for this, to be vigilant about it. It's almost a command. And so even if you have a lot of contemporary church leaders who do not understand astrology, they do not understand what it is and how it works, and they're like, oh, well, that's bad. They can't condemn it by church doctrine or anything like that because it would be going against divine revelation. The Holy Spirit would prevent that. Yeah, and I think a lot of times it's like, say, ghost hunting or something. A lot of times you will find a you know, a priest to say, oh, stay away from that stuff. And that's not necessarily saying that the church is condemning it. I think it's it's that particular priest in a shorthand way saying, this can lead you down a road where there's stuff that you don't want to get into. And it's just easier for him to say, just don't mess with it, rather than to get into the particulars of it. You know? Yeah, I would say that. So contemporary astrology, a lot of it comes from the Theosophist Society that was operating in Britain and America between like the 1920s and then into like the 70s. And there was kind of a circle of them, like Alan Leo, Charles Jane, Marcus Edmund, and they were like all working together and they were doing really good astrology, actually. The guys I actually pay attention to the most for astrology. But you really gotta know to like just you know they'll, they'll start talking about reincarnation and things like that and it's just like you gotta eat the meat spit out the bones with these guys there and you go. gotta have that type of understanding so from their influence heavy influence on contemporary astrology i think that's why it's really into the new age and things one of the major reasons why a contemporary astrology thing that you're doing is you're looking at the star placements of an event or person's birth and then you're measuring the angles of it and you're saying these stars these planets they have this type of influence due to these angles and then there's a number of other techniques that you can build off of that where like you're overlapping different charts to see this day's influence on this person's birth chart. And then there's a lot of astrological theories about why that would work and such. And there's progressions and things. And it's all math. And when you're a good, honest astrologer about what you're looking at, these planets and things, they have a broad range of meaning that it's really hard to get extremely specific into things 
I like to try to, but it's hard. And most of what astrologers do because of that is rather than looking into the future, they're actually looking at the past most often. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you're reading astrology books or looking at like World War One or, or this guy's life and historical figures and such, you're really looking at the past because that's really the only way you can be really sure about what you're looking at in these charts. If you're doing a prediction, you're using a progression and transits. And that's more like, what is the weather going to be like on this day? And essentially just saying, oh, are these good planets that are aspecting my birth charts or are these bad planets? And it's really hard to go any further than bad thing, good thing. Well, Justin, thank you for bringing the, the astrology of the Magi as best as we, we could determine from this time. And I want to wish you a Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. The first question is, can dead people possess the living? Mm, okay, well, start with an interesting one. The answer to that simply is, personally, I don't know. In terms of the kind of sources, it's somewhat divided. If we're speaking about an, an, an evil possession, a kind of a diabolical possession form, then again, uh, the record is somewhat divided on this. There are some that say yes, and they would point to possession cases where the person who's possessed, what we would call an energumen, the person who's possessed, at times uh, reveals that not only are they possessed by demons, but that there are fallen uh, or damned souls speaking through them at the same time. Now, the problem with this is, of course, that when we're dealing with the diabolical, or indeed the damned for that matter, we're dealing with something that is extremely deceitful. And so we are always warned very, very clearly by the church, number one, not to get into dialogue with the diabolical or with the damned, and also not to trust anything that they say. So from that point of view, all that we can say is there have certainly been exorcisms where it has seemed as though those speaking through were both diabolical spirits and or damned souls. But we just don't know from that point of view. And again, various opinions would be present amongst the various authorities, both spiritual 
and, and sort of practical exorcist authorities as well. My tendency would simply be to say that whatever information you're getting from that side of things, you just distrust completely. And so whatever they're, whatever they're saying would be taken with not just a pinch of salt, but, but consecrated exercise salt. We simply don't know. However, in terms of willful possession, where someone actually allows themselves to be possessed or stands aside in some way, there are some interesting stories from the lives of the mystics where at different times, either their guardian angels or some of the saints or holy ones seem to have spoken through them. This isn't possession per se, because obviously there is a cooperation of the will and um, the person is also allowing that to happen. But in our own order, we have a great mystic, St. Veronica Giuliani, um, an extraordinary mystic and well worth an episode of The Flowered Path along the way. But one of the things that would happen to her is that when she would be in ecstasy, quite often she, she said or claimed, it was claimed by the sisters in the monastery, that the person they would speak to when they were speaking to her was actually Our Lady, who would stand in for her and would even run the monastery and make decisions about the life of the monastery while Veronica was was off in deep contemplative union with God. At other times, it was her guardian angel who spoke through her. And there are other stories of particular saints uh, who, when in deep ecstasy, but being commanded or um, spoken to by uh, by their, their superiors and, and, and a reply being demanded, uh, it was in fact the guardian angel of the person who spoke through them at that time to reveal that they weren't available, kind of like a celestial answering service, you know, at that moment. So from that point of view, there would seem to be at least the suspension of certain faculties of the soul that would allow other spiritual powers. Obviously, when we're speaking about our Blessed Lady, as exalted as she is the Queen of Heaven, she is still a human being. So from that point of view, we could speak about about it from a kind of a positive sense. But when it comes to the diabolical or the darker, I simply would say we do not know because we cannot trust what we are being told. I seem to remember reading from one exorcist or another that they had run into several accounts of Judas possessing people. Now, again, we don't know if whatever that was is telling the truth. When it sure. And, and the church has never declared as to whether or not Judas was damned. And I think that's very important. The church has never made a formal dogmatic declaration about anyone as to whether or not they are damned. The most that the church says is, look, by looking at their life, we know that they need extreme prayer and we can pray for them. In fact, in the Coptic tradition, the Coptic church tradition, Judas is actually still venerated as a saint because it said that because it was necessary for the Christ to be betrayed so as to enter into his passion, that Judas actually fulfilled a divine function in that sense. And there is the belief that he was redeemed at the end, you know, in, in the last moments of his life. We, we simply do not know. And again, uh, while we can presume that through free will, there, there may be those who in their last moments uh, or right up to their last moments reject God or reject the providence or the love of God. It is still the hope that in those last moments grace might prevail. And that's why we're called upon to pray for not just for the living now around us, but even for those who were living before, you know, um, God who is eternal and beyond time can accept our prayer now for those who were before us. And there's a lovely story of Padre Pio, who on one occasion, one of the brothers asked him, you know, what was he praying for? What was he offering his mass for? And he said, for uh, the intention of a happy death for my grandmother and my great grandmother, both of whom were long dead at that stage. Uh, and so the friar kind of questioned him further. And he said, well, 
obviously God can apply the mass that I am saying now in this moment of time, because he would have known that this mass was being said for those people in their lifetime. So I think we, we need to set our perception to a kind of an eternal perception. Now, the other element to think about from an exorcism point of view is the fact that we can speak of a Judas spirit as well, which simply means a spirit of betrayal or a spirit of deceit. And from that point of view, just because a spirit is naming itself as a Judas spirit or as, say, a Lilith spirit or something like that or a Jezebel spirit, it doesn't mean that we're actually speaking to those particular historical personages. It can mean that in the communication, which, remember, also involves the psychology of the individual possessed, that we may be speaking to a spirit that is telling us the kind of activity it is engaged in. Because, again, with angelic spirits of all kinds, both positive and negative, the name and the task often go together. As regards Judas, I know there is a legend that he hanged himself, but do we know what actually became it's not a legend. It's in the scriptures itself, okay. in the Gospels, that he did hang himself. And so often we see in the fathers particularly the contrast between Peter and Judas, both of whom betray Christ. But we see Peter repent and accept the forgiveness of Christ. And so becomes the foundation stone of the entire church. Whereas Judas rejects the possibility of forgiveness. And this is the sin of Judas, not that he betrayed Christ, but that he rejected the possibility of forgiveness in his, in his pride. But there's a very interesting point that some scripture scholars point out, which is that at the Last Supper, particularly um, it's in the Gospel of John, when Jesus announces that one of the apostles is going to betray him, it goes around the table and each of the apostles say in turn, not I, Lord, surely. Now, remembering that in the Jewish tradition, Lord is a title for the divine and the divine only. Um, so not I, Lord, surely, they say. Judas is the only one who says, not I, Rabbi, surely. And it's often been pointed out that this shows that whereas the other apostles had accepted the divinity of Christ, or at least were on their way to accepting the divinity of Christ, understanding him as the Messiah, or at least as a, a divine person, Judas had simply only seen him as, as a teacher. And so it becomes much easier for him to betray the person he thinks of as just a human teacher. So uh, there is a certain mercy called on because we can only uh, be condemned for what we, we do knowingly or willingly. And so there is the argument made by some spiritual writers that Judas in his betrayal of Christ did not know that he was betraying the Messiah until the experience of the crucifixion. And this is what led him then into the despair that eventually became his suicide. But again, we, all we can do is trust in the infinite mercy of God. Amen. This leads to sort of a, an adjunct question, and I think we went over this when we talked about angels, but I think it's worth talking about again, because I know that the church will refer to persons or personhood outside of human beings, right? So, uh, Absolutely. Angels, yes. Yeah. Okay, what is personhood in the eyes of the church? Gosh, okay. Well, I suppose when we speak of a person, we, we, we're speaking of somebody uh, or, or some not something, really, somebody, not in the sense of physical body now, but an individual, an individual consciousness, really, that has been granted free will and the ability to perceive and apprehend uh, spiritual truth as well. The ability to be in relationship with the divine or, or indeed with, with one another. Um, and so we would say that at the very least, the two forms of personhood that are present are human personhood, in the image and likeness of, of God, 
and the angels who do share in the image of God to some extent, but who are non-bodily present. And so the angelic intelligences then are, are divided into the angels, that, as we would say, those who follow the divine will, and the demons then who have fallen out of divine will. So when we hear conversations about things like non-human intelligence going around at the moment in kind of various scientific formats, as though this is something new, this is nothing new, and not only to Christianity or, or, or Judaism, but to any of the religions. I mean, all of the religions speak of non-human intelligence in that sense, to, to presume that there are other levels of consciousness and other levels of personhood. The difference between humanity and, and angels from a personal point of view is that we share in one human nature. So all of us participate in human nature while being individual persons. Uh, we're, we're into scholasticism now in terms of the definitions that are there, whereas the angels are absolute unique individuals, every one of them. So while they share in the angelic nature, they are utterly unique. And so we, we kind of group them under angels, but every single one of them, we would believe, is an absolute unique being, utterly unlike its fellows. But we do say that they that depending on the task they accomplish, there are different categories of angels ranging across the, the whole celestial hierarchy from the seraphim, the highest of angels whose nature is pure love and love is fire right the way down to, I sort of um, tremble to say, common or, guardi or garden angels, but the, 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 the ordinary angels of basic guidance and guardianship, which would be seen as the lowest choir of the hierarchy. All right, next question is, should we have third-class relics blessed? No, is the answer. By, by the very simple fact that they are third-class relics, they are blessed. They are blessed for having been in contact with the first-class relic of the saint. So within Catholicism, we speak of, of relics as having three basic categories. A first-class relic is a piece of the saint, either the body or a piece of the body of the saint. Various categories of these exist, everything from the bones, ex ossibus, to the hair, ex capillus, or to the heart, ex cordae, or, or various other, other elements of the human body. Then we have second class relics, which are things that were used by the saint, habitually used, um, not just something that, that the saint used once, you know. Remember somebody asking, if a saint sat on a bus for a journey, does that bus now become a second-class relic? And the answer is no. Um, <laughs> it need, needs to be something habitually habitually in use. So it might be the prayer book, the clothing, the rosary, the elements that are, that are being used by the saint on a regular basis. And this is the understanding, it's a very important Catholic understanding, that the use of something by someone who is attuned to the divine presence changes the nature of that thing such that it becomes a sacramental, not a sacrament now, but a sacramental. Uh, it becomes, through constant use, imbued with the divine energies, as, as our Eastern Orthodox brothers and sisters would call it, or the Eastern churches would call it. And so it in turn becomes a kind of a conduit of grace. And this is perfectly scriptural. Uh, we go back to the Acts of the Apostles, where believers would bring handkerchiefs and cloths to Peter and Paul for them to touch and these would then be laid on the sick who would recover. Even the shadow of Peter was, was considered to have um, sacramental, experience, uh, sacramental power so that they would lay the sick out on the street so that even his shadow would touch them and they would recover and be healed. And so from the very earliest days of the church, there was this understanding that the use of something has a consecratory power when done with divine attention. So even to this day, sacramental objects that are used within the divine liturgy, for example, 
a chalice can be consecrated in one of two ways. It can be consecrated by a bishop through his prayer of blessing and consecration over it, or it can also be consecrated by use. It, it can be changed. There's a wonderful story of the great mystic and saint, well, hopefully saint-to-be, but I would consider her a saint, Dorothy Day, founder of the Catholic Worker Organization, uh, an extraordinary advocate for the homeless and for the poor, and an American at that. On one occasion, they were celebrating Mass in one of the small hostels or houses uh, that she had established for the homeless. And a priest came along, but he had forgotten a chalice. He hadn't brought a chalice with him. And the only thing they had were a couple of coffee mugs. So the priest said he would use the coffee mug as the chalice. And he did so. And they celebrated Mass. They had had the Mass. The priest received communion from from the chalice. He distributed uh, the Lord's body to, to all those who were there. And, and afterwards, he handed back the coffee mug to Dorothy Day. And I think it was only a couple of hours later, one of the workers in the house saw her out digging in the garden. And she was burying the coffee mug in the garden. And they asked her, why was she doing that? And she said, because it's not a coffee mug anymore. Yes. Uh, and she yeah. wanted to make sure that nobody would commit an unwitting sacrilege by using what was now a chalice through the consecration of use. And so she disposed of it as we would normally dispose of sacred objects when we can't use them anymore, which is we would either burn them or bury them. And so she buried the coffee mug in the garden out of reverence and respect for what had happened because the precious blood of Christ had touched it. And so it was now no longer a mere coffee mug. It was and is, if you like, the Holy Grail, as all chalices are that are used in, in the celebration of the Eucharist. So when we come to third class relics, then third class relics are usually... Small articles of devotion, and they may be pieces of cloth, they might be icons or pictures of the saint. Uh, Sometimes people will use their own rosaries and things like that, and they would touch them to a first-class relic. And the understanding then is that these uh, little pieces of cloth, etc., are blessed by being in contact with the body of the saint. You cannot make a third-class relic from a second-class relic. It has to be from a first-class relic. And so these small little pieces of, of cloth or of, of paper, or sometimes people will use uh, flowers or, or petals of flowers, etc. These are then distributed and are used for blessing the faithful or as a reminder of the presence of the saint. They're to be considered uh, with reverence and respect, but they have been blessed by the contact with the saint themselves and do not require a canonical blessing. Is there a problem with having items blessed more than once. For instance, you may have seen me talk about rescuing statues, right? And Mm. presumably some of these have been in churches and have been blessed before. If I was to get them blessed again, is there an issue with that? No, there's no problem with that. And in fact, articles of devotion like icons and statues and things like that would often be re-blessed or rededicated. Um, Sometimes uh, even within a church, a church would celebrate maybe the anniversary of its dedication every so often. And the church itself would would receive, not, we wouldn't consecrate the church again, that's only done once, but there would be maybe a blessing of rededication, etc., where the bishop or the pastor, the parish priest would sprinkle holy water and bless the various objects again as a reminder that these are blessed, that they are holy, that they are a way of, of connecting with the saints themselves. And I think it's a good thing when we're taking things home, maybe we, we find them secondhand or, you know, we're given them or gifted them. And one of the great <laughs> joys and burdens of being a religious is that when anybody dies, the first thing they give us are their statues and pictures because people don't know where to put them or where to bring them and they don't want to necessarily destroy them or rubbish them. 
So we often have a large collection of stuff that we would either repair or, or kind of um, send out or gift to people along the way. Yeah, very often we will bless those things as well because, again, we're not sure where they've come from. We're not sure what use they were put to uh, just because they're a statue of a holy person or a holy thing or an object that was made or intended for holy use doesn't mean that that's always been their story. And so a simple a simple blessing just to, to ensure that they're um, kind of rededicated and renewed. There's never a problem with that. While we're on the subject of relics, I think it's prudent to mention this. There's been some discussion about this on the Flower Path Discord, and I just want to put it out there because sure. part of this I knew the second part I only came to me recently, but it's important to mention. We are not to sell relics. Mm, Absolutely, yeah. And and nor are we to purchase them. So either one is actually simony. This is a sin. We're not supposed to do this. The the purchasing or selling of a relic itself is simony and and indeed could even be argued is is sacrilege. And and even from a legal point of view, from a civilly legal point of view, trading in in human body parts, if it's a first-class relic, is illegal. One of the ways in which people, let's call it the ingenuity of people and of certain sellers to get around this is to say, I'm not selling the relic, I'm selling the reliquary. You're only, you, you know, the, the fact that the relic is present is just a happy accident, but I'm, I'm selling the reliquary rather than the relic itself. Right, you're buying the container, you're, you're, yes. you're getting the relic for free. Yeah. Some of them are very precious and very beautiful, the reliquaries themselves, and so they command a very high price. Now, I can understand the nobility of some people who feel I'm buying these to rescue them, to take them back from possible profanation or possible, you know, dark use of these things or even just, you know, that people aren't using them simply as art, artistic elements, you know, in their, in their homes or houses. And so there, there's two things, I suppose I would say. There is a grave, grave responsibility on all of us as Catholics or, or even as Christians to preserve and protect that which is holy. And so I think we need to be very careful of when we hear things like, for example, if, if, uh, if somebody discovers that granny or granddad has died and perhaps they were given a relic along the way or they have a number of relics in their house or whatever, they should only go to people who are going to use them you know, in a venerable way, in, in, in a way that, 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 that is in tune with the faith. And if not, then they should be returned uh, not sold, but returned to the church. It's extremely important that that happens. The other thing is if we hear of things like religious houses or churches or or convents or monasteries or whatever it might be that are closing, it's okay to petition at that point to say, look, if there are uh, relics there that you're not sure what's going to happen to them or we're afraid of, of what will happen to them, to either sound that note of alarm or also even to write to the bishop and say, look, obviously you're aware that these these places are closing. They wouldn't close without the permission of the bishop. But can we be sure that the various sacred elements are being disposed of properly in the sense that they're going to either other monasteries, other churches, or or to, for the veneration of the faithful elsewhere? One of the things I find really difficult is very often in churches now, because of the beauty and the history of the reliquary, you'll often find that they're, they're, they're in the museums associated with the churches, when actually they should be in a relic chapel. And uh, if, you're, if you want to expose the reliquary for the beauty of its artwork or its, its historicity, that's fine. But remove the relic from it and place it in a new reliquary whereby it can still be open for the veneration of the faithful. I was in a shop on one occasion in Bruges in Belgium, an antique shop. And when the uh, owner discovered that I was a monastic, he said, oh, you'll be interested in these relics. Come, come here. So I was brought into the back room and I was 
actually horrified. There were, you know, almost full bodies of saints. The unfortunate thing was that during the Second World War, uh, from from the time of the French Revolution onto the Second World War, where monasteries were um, were destroyed and convents were destroyed and chapels and churches were bombed, often these things were looted. Sometimes in a way that meant that that the devout faithful were trying to take them into their homes to protect them. Uh, but oftentimes they got passed on then to generations that maybe weren't practicing or whatever. And the unfortunate thing is that they then end up in the hands of kind of private collectors or sellers. So I would really and truly sound a note of caution because the more we participate in such a market, the more, obviously, the more demand that there is, the more the sellers will appear. And I often say this to people who are very desirous of relics, you know, if in Providence you are meant to have a relic of a particular saint, it will come to you. You don't have to go and search for it. You can simply tell the saint, you know, this is something I would like to have. I would like to be close to you or connected to you. And if you can do this for me, that's wonderful. And then you leave yourself open to the will of God in that regard. If someone were to have purchased a relic, not a first-class relic, say it's, say it's a second-class relic, does that negate its blessedness at that point? or is No, no, not at all. What is blessed is blessed and will always be blessed. Even an act of deliberate, God forbid, but deliberate sacrilege against something doesn't uh, remove its sacredness. Even when it comes to, you know, sacrilege or profanation of, of a holy place, while we would perform an act of rededication or an act of reparation, particularly for those kind of things happening, there is no negation of the holiness of the place. Because of that, it is more to quieten our own minds and hearts about what happened. But no, um, it doesn't need to be re-blessed or rededicated. Once, once blessed, always blessed. There's a lovely Irish proverb about the ruins of the monasteries that were destroyed during the dissolution of the monasteries under Henry VIII. What they found was they were expecting all of these people to, to sort of, you know, bend the knee and go over to the new faith, or kind of the Protestant faith that was being imposed as an established faith here. And what they found was that the people were still gathering in the ruins of the monasteries. That's where they would celebrate their weddings. That's where they would bury their dead. That's where they would go to pray for healing. They would still go to the holy wells. They would still go to the stones um, that were associated with the celebration of the Eucharist. We call them the mass rocks. And they would go to the ruins of the abbey. And the old Irish proverb associated with it is Quivnian on Thiernamonic, which means the land remembers the monks. And it was the idea that once a place had been a place of prayer and devotion and meditation, the place itself is changed by that. It has a different sacramental character. And so to attend those places or to go to those places meant that you were participating in the life of prayer that had sounded there for however many hundred years. It doesn't go away just because it's destroyed. That's absolutely beautiful. I will say, as regards to relics, it makes them that much more special. If they can't be bought, if they just have to come to you. and Absolutely. And you remove that aspect of it. You remove the, the idea of uh, purchasing it. And mm. I mean, I, I can't make guarantees, but I, it seems like they will come to you, right? I, I, I do believe that. And, and I, I think if we're, if we're living an active supernatural faith, then, then that's what we, we understand. We're, we're surrounded by them all of the time. I remember a professor of theology years ago with us. He used to say, are you having trouble understanding? It might be a passage of Thomas Aquinas or Duns Scotus or somebody else. He used to say, ask them. They're here with us in the room. Ask them. It was a very important lesson that these weren't just dead words from hundreds of years ago, but that the people who had written them and lived them, you know, are we have access to them through the communion of the saints anyway. Um, and so the action of the saint, the prayer of the saint, the intercession of the saint is just as present in any room, whether the relic is there or not. The relic is simply there as a sensory focus for us in that sense. 
Well, we're going to move back to purgatory, not literally. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> are ghosts the souls of purgatory? And I bet this, I, I'm, I'm assuming he means are all ghosts souls from purgatory? Uh, well, th- that's that's the thing. We have to define what a ghost is first right. and foremost. Right. Um, and I suppose in, in the work that I've done and, and been trained in, we have various categories. So somebody rings us up, phones us up and says, I have a ghost in my house. And, you know, there's about a hundred questions that have to be asked before we do that. But if we are talking about sentient human apparitions, then we are speaking about purgatorial souls, according to the tradition of the church. Oh, okay. So if we are speaking of an appearance in which we have the possibility of dialogue, in which sometimes there is the petition for prayer or for assistance or for help, then yes, we're dealing with a purgatorial soul at that point. Now, there are other categories going right the way, way, way back. So if we start with the most basic, and this is presuming we've moved beyond the questions, you know, to find out whether it's a natural occurrence or not. Um, so if it's not mice in the walls and it's not the heating pipes and things like that, then we're, we're at the point where we're kind of saying, okay, is something else going on? So if we have what we would call poltergeist manifestation, so things like noise, objects moving, sometimes the kind of unusual atmospheres, um, water appearing, other materials appearing and disappearing, sometimes fires and heat, uh, apports, those kind of things. They are always divided into, into three by us. So there's the possibility of what we call natural poltergeist activity, which is generated by human beings themselves and is often part of the kind of preternatural experience that, that some human beings have when they are in very high emotional states or liminal states. This can be both positive emotional states and negative. People often generally think of poltergeist activity resulting from uh, only negative events, but it can actually result from very positive events as well. So that's kind of a first level. Second level then is poltergeist activity where there seems to be an entity involved. And that would be where we then get groaning voices, movement of of objects, sometimes writing or written messages. Again, there can be the possibility of lesser spirits of different kinds feeding off the emotional energy of others. So it can often be a bit of a mix to try and find those things out. And we would often apply not just blessings and prayer at that moment, but we'd also be bringing in kind of counselors, etc., to speak to people about their kind of psychological difficulties or problems. Uh, next kind up would be what very often is referred to as a recurring haunting. So that would be Lots of people who over a long time have seen the same, you know, the same appearance, the same vision happen over and over, which is, you know, we hear it in every big house or castle. You know, the the lady who appears on the stairs walks down and disappears through the wall and it's the same route all of the time. And there's no interaction with the people around. This can often be a kind of a psychic impression. Somebody, uh, some major event has happened, often a traumatic event. And it has left a kind of an impression there, which given the right set of circumstances and the right sensitivity in certain people, they see it recur. But there is no actual human soul there. You are not interacting with the, with a living soul at that point. Obviously, there are the various diabolical man- manifestations as well. And there would be discernment around whether or not there's some kind of oppression or, or infestation happening from a diabolical point of view. It's very easy to discern those because any of presence of the holy or the sacred creates a huge reaction almost immediately. And there can be a kind of a hiding behind 
haunting or pretending that it's human ghosts or it's it's human ancestry that's present but once it's challenged it comes out in a very clear way as diabolical um, and then we're up to ghosts proper which we would divide into ghosts of the living so that's the kind of crisis apparitions that you'll often hear of uh, where someone is still living but maybe is on the edge of living uh, you know someone who's just died and kind of appears or is present uh, there's a very notable apparition just after his death of the famous Christian uh, theologian and writer C.S. Lewis who uh, appeared to a friend of his I think he was in a different country he was certainly a long way away from him he knew that Lewis was sick and dying so was very surprised to hear his doorbell ring and open the door and there was Lewis and he said he looked in every respect you know three-dimensional and fully well looked a lot brighter and better than he had seen him in, in a good few years and he asked him how are you here where are you going and he said I'm on my I'm on my way home which is a beautiful way of putting it and then disappeared. So uh, there are some very interesting accounts of those kind of crisis apparitions. And then we have, I suppose, what we would consider full-on human ghost, and that is someone who appears who is in a purgatorial state and is seeking help and assistance via prayers or spiritual action or the celebration of the Eucharist so as to be liberated from, uh, assisted in being liberated from purgatorial suffering. And that's, I suppose, a clear indication of the doctrine of the church that, you know, um, the living have a duty to to pray and help those who have died and those who have died have a duty to assist and protect us by their intercession. So, again, it's part of this great communion of the saints, particularly the communion between the church pilgrim, the church on earth and and the church suffering in purgatory. All right. I think I know the answer to this one, but I'll I'll let you clarify it. Is there any added benefit to partaking both the wine and bread at communion rather than only the bread? No, none at all. And the church has taught this forever. The fullness of the sacramental substance is present in both species of um, the host, the bread or the precious blood, the, the, the consecrated wine. For the kind of what we say is, is sort of for the perfection of the sign, in other words, for, for uh, in, in liturgical gatherings when we have the possibility of receiving both, there is a completion of the sign in a kind of a symbolic way. But the totality of Christ is present in the tiniest particle or the smallest drop of the precious blood or of the, the sacred host. So as long as we are receiving one, we are receiving the totality of Christ, body and blood, soul and divinity. The tiniest particle is important. And if people observe priests at Mass very carefully deal with the items after communion, folding up Absolutely. the cloth to make sure not a crumb goes away. Absolutely. So the normal measurement is that, that anything that the human senses can apprehend of the Eucharistic species still has the totality of the presence of Christ within. I shouldn't even say within. It simply is <laughs> is the totality of Christ in that, in that moment. Sometimes we can find ourselves speaking in kind of um, directional, because that's how, how we, we think as humans. But we're, we're, we're speaking of something of the most extraordinary mystical power at, at, at that point. And so Padre Pio, for example, on one occasion while they were celebrating a mass, he was celebrating mass. And you can imagine the great crowds and they would often give out Holy Communion before the mass and even after the mass. So as to make sure that the, the number of pilgrims were able to, to enter the church to receive the Lord's body. And on one occasion, one of the priests, obviously, uh, in error, dropped a host, but didn't notice it. And this is Father Alessio, who was the great companion of Padre Pio for, for many years, who looked after him. 
And he was back at the tabernacle restoring the ciborium, the, the, the vessel in which the, the hosts are carried, when he, he noticed movement to the side of his head. And when he looked, there was a host just floating in the air beside him. So looking around, he noticed, noticed this. So he opened the ciborium and the host just very gently was placed back into the sporium. He closed it, closed the tabernacle. Afterwards, he spoke to Pio about it. And Pio said, we're surrounded by crowds of angels. And so even if the smallest particle is lost, you can be sure that the angels will always restore it afterwards. That's amazing. I, mean, that's... I was blessed enough to meet some of the friars who, who did live with him. And, you know, even the stories that we're aware of uh, in, in public, the stories they have of what it was like to live with him. It was literally the extraordinary became the ordinary every day. Wow. If someone is enrolled in a medal that has daily wear and prayer requirements and fails to do them, does he lose the benefits of the enrollment? Okay. Well, obviously, if we if we are taking on, so this would be things like the miraculous medal or the brown scapular or, or those kind of sacramentals that would include not just a blessing from wearing them, but we would take on maybe a practice or a devotion associated with them. So, for example, with the brown scapular, we're expected to observe chastity as per our state of life. And that means, obviously, um, if we're, for example, like myself, a celibate religious, you try and live live the, the vow of celibacy fully and completely. And if you're a married person, you try and live your marriage commitment to your spouse without going outside of that commitment. And if you're a single person, you live chastely until you are married. So there, that's the commitment associated with the brown scapular as an example. And, and so when we, when we take these on, you know, we're, we're, we're taking on a practice. It is a spiritual discipline that goes with that, that the medal or the scapular is really an outward sign of an inward disposition. And so, so far as is humanly possible, we should at least try to fulfill what we have promised uh, but if it becomes, you know, impossible for us to do so, say, for example, with some of the sacramentals, there might be um, a command to fast on particular days or in particular times. But if someone is ill or someone is, is aged or is not obliged anymore by, by, because of age to the discipline of fasting, then there is no canonical penalty. And, and there's no particular sin involved in letting these things go either. Really, they are uh, devotional practices that are taken on in addition to our basic spiritual life. And so uh, we, we take them on so as to increase devotion and to strengthen ourselves spiritually. But they shouldn't become an extraordinary burden that keeps the person from the basic practices of the faith. They're meant to augment and deepen rather than take us away and distract us or make us scrupulous. What is a good way to thank God and the saints for an answered prayer? I live a good life. You know, this is this is what they want from us, to live the life of love, uh, to serve our brothers and sisters, um, to dwell in prayer. I mean, the most basic of all is to, is to say thank you, to live in gratitude each day for the gifts and the blessings that we receive. And uh, sometimes, you know, we can look for these extraordinary practices and uh, there's times when we offer them. I know people who've gone on pilgrimage to say thank you. I know people who've had masses offered, which is always the greatest prayer that we can that we can have offered celebration of the Eucharist it's, it itself is, is the great act of gratitude. Eucharistos means to give thanks. But more than anything else, I think that the most important thing is to grow in intimacy with God, to grow in, in intimacy with the Holy Ones and to, you know, to see them as friends and companions upon the way. You know, remember the only destiny that God has in mind for you, whoever you are, is that you yourself become a saint. And the best way to become a saint is 
to be familiar with the saints, to call on them to realize that they are with us and they have shared our mortal problems. They have shared our sinful nature. They have shared all of that. But they have surrendered themselves to God's love so completely that they've been transformed and changed. And so they show us the possibility of what we can become if we work with them. So again, the more we live just a life filled with basic gratitude for the gifts we have received, I think the more we will please them. Do victim souls atone for the sins of people in the future or only past and present? Mm, This was an interesting one. Again, I'd go back to to Padre Pio's teaching around prayer for his his ancestors as he was talking about it. Um, the, The answer to this is that a victim soul who offers something up, who is someone who has consecrated their life to reparation for sin or, or for uh, complete surrender to the will of God, gives that to the Lord and the Lord can apply that where he will. So it, it is absolutely not beyond the bounds of possibility that it could be applied to the future as well. Because we know that, that when Christ died on Calvary in that moment, he was dying not just for all those who existed before that, but for all those who will ever exist for all people of all times and places, and indeed for all of creation itself from beginning to end. So from that point of view, he is Lord of history and can apply those merits wherever he wishes. So uh, I have no idea whether practically that is what happens, but I know that it could happen. So I have no I have no issue with that as a, as a possible teaching. Another related point is we are allowed to, if we receive a plenary indulgence, we are allowed to offer that up for souls in yes, purgatory. Yes, absolutely. Well. Yeah, it can be offered for the holy souls, or it can be offered for somebody else as well. We can, we can receive it for someone else. Something to consider, especially with praying at a crush. That's new this year, right? The, the yes, it's been given just for this year for the anniversary. Oh, yeah. okay. At what point does penance cross the line into masochism, and at that point, would it be a sin? Masochism is a sin. If we are hurting the body, um, being disrespectful to the body, or have a very negative attitude towards the body, that is not the Christian tradition. So one of the things we have to be aware of is that there is a particular heresy. Uh, we often call it the, the universal heresy or the, or the perennial heresy that appears again and again. And that Christianity always has to fight off again and again. And th- this, this heresy is uh, what we call Manichaeism. And one of the the, the teachings of Manichaeism is that matter, the body, even our our basic human experience is is wrong or essentially sinful. And that is, is, and so it has to be fought and has to be defeated. And it separates the body from the soul. Uh, Christianity does not teach that and and never has in, in its authentic orthodox expression. Christianity has always taught that the human being is body and soul. We are complete in body and soul. So when we die at the moment, we experience the separation of body and soul. And please God, if we're saved through grace and through a good life, the soul uh, resides in heaven. The body until the end of time continues to devolve or dissolve back into its, its fundamental parts. But we believe in the resurrection of the body, as we say at the end of the creed. And so we are saved, but not complete until that moment when the body will be reunited with the soul in a glorified form. And so we are called to have reverence and respect for our bodies and indeed for the bodies of everybody else. To behold in them the beauty of God, the image and likeness of God is present not just in the soul, but in the body as well. So when we speak of penance, we're we're talking about training that part of ourselves, the will, which very often desires other than the will of God. 
And when it falls into sin, we make reparation for that by trying to train, uh, train the will through mortification or making reparation through penance. And so very often we do penance through in, in a bodily way by, by fasting or by um, maybe, you know, experiencing a little bit of the, 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 the cold uh, a little bit more or uh, by serving our brothers and sisters a little bit more, by being a little bit more generous, maybe by um, restricting food and drink to some extent. But none of this should ever harm the body. Now, the problem is we read these wonderful lives of the saints and we see most extraordinary penances. But we're dealing with people who you know, are being inspired by the spirit, uh, but who are also human people who get things wrong. At the end of his life, St. Francis apologized to his body for what he had put it through, realizing that he had put an unfair burden on what he called brother ass, the body, you know, the donkey that, that had to be trained because it was so willful. And so I think when it comes to severe penance or extreme penance, it's very important that that is only done under the guidance of a good spiritual director. Nobody should take on extreme penances first. We should work to live the basic penance of human life, which is being kind, being patient, you know, being compassionate to those we work with, live with, etc. The problem is we can end up in a situation where we're doing extraordinary, uh, very heavy suffering penances but we're actually inflaming pride and vanity by doing those while we're still being angry and irritable with the people around us. And this is a very dark trap that people can get caught in, um, particularly in the early stages of spirituality. So they think they're living a very converted life, but actually they're making life hell for the people around them. And so we would always say to people who really want to start the spiritual life properly, you know, basic simple penances of the ordinary and the everyday. Not getting angry when the lights turn red and you really want to get where you're, where you're going, but instead taking that as a signal for a moment of prayer, a moment of depth, a moment of presence. You know, putting your phone down and really listening to your children, you know, even though what they're saying might not interest you at all. The same is true for, for, your, for your partner, your husband, your wife, uh, those who are around you. For us, you know, we always say the, the great penance in the monastery is always the other brothers. And the surprising thing in the monastery is to discover that you're the great penance for them. You know, this is the, the, the important thing. There, there should be a gentleness and a compassionate experience to it. And it should never push us to the point where we are not able then to fulfill the basic duties of our life. So someone who stays up all night in prayer is wonderful, but only if they're then able to be up in the morning and be pleasant and patient with their children and with their spouse. If it's taking you away from that, then there is something wrong and it needs to be corrected. If I go to confession and let's say I'm given as penance uh, to say a decade of the rosary. Sure. And I feel like maybe I should say two or three. Am I being scrupulous at that point? Yes. <laughs> Accept your penance and do your penance to the best of your ability and then leave the rest to the mercy of God. Because what we're doing is we're sitting in arbitration on ourselves. And so once we sit in arbitration on ourselves, we're taking the place of God. It's actually kind of an idolatry. It, it's a nice feeling one because we feel like we're doing extra. Now, I'm not talking about being generous to God in a loving way. But when it comes particularly to penance, trust the confessor. 
you know, very often the confessor will actually go off and, you know, unite their prayer, their masses, their own penances to what you're doing. So what they're giving you is measured. It's a prescription. It's like a doctor. You know, if the doctor says to you, you need seven days of antibiotics and you go, well, to hell with that, I'm, I'm taking 21, you end up damaging the body more. And so it's, it's important to listen to the confessor and to trust in the mercy of God always. Well, I want to say Merry Christmas to you, Brother Richard. Absolutely, and a Merry Christmas to you and to all of those listening in on The Flowered Path. I wish you every blessing of the Christ child, and I hope at some point you get to visit a Christmas crib and there remember St. Francis this year particularly. Amen. like what you hear, please subscribe and follow wherever you're listening, and if you feel inclined to leave a nice review, that would help as well. If you would subscribe to the Flower Path YouTube channel, even if you don't listen there, that would also help out. Thanks to Justin, Brother Richard, and Father Longenecker, and thanks to you all for listening. You can find us at theflowerpath.com, on Facebook at facebook.com slash theflowerpath, and on Instagram at the flowered path, all one word, no underscores. Merry Christmas to you all. Who hung upon a tree And flowers ever on for
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.